Hi, everybody. This is Gino Vanelli. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the persons appearing on the program. Today on Rainbow Country, Casa Susanna, the story of the first American transgender network from 1959 to 1968. That and more in episode 391, so stay tuned for Gay Talk Radio right here on Rainbow Country. Hi, this is Emily Saliers from Indigo Girls. Hey everyone, this is Chris Harder, porn star, burlesque performer, and the creator of Porn to Be a Star. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Well, hello and welcome to a brand new journey through Rainbow Country. As I like to call it, a little gay radio show working to give voice to the LGBT community and beyond. And as always, I am your tour guide through Rainbow Country. I'm producer and host, Mark Tara. By the way, Rainbow Country originates from CIUT-FM in Toronto, and now proudly in syndication on 12 outlets across Canada, from coast to coast to coast. The Yukon, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, the east coast of Canada in Newfoundland, Ontario, even down to Buffalo, New York, and online. Well, thanks to you tuning in, streaming, downloading, but ultimately listening. Together, we continue to build Rainbow Country into a nationally syndicated gay radio show, a number one LGBT podcast on Podomatic.com's Gay and Lesbian Chart, as well as being recognized as Canada's number one LGBT podcast on Feedspot.com. So today, Casa Susanna, an exhibition of snapshots taken by members of the earliest known American cross-dressing network, which operated in upstate New York, the Catskills, from the 1950s to the 1960s. Joining me to talk about this AGO exhibition that's on right now is Sophia Hackett, the AGO's curator of photography and photography historian, Dr. Isabel Bonet. We'll find out about this new AGO photographic exhibition, the 2022 documentary Casa Susanna, and so much more. Plus an hour two, music from LGBT artists, independent artists, voices that we've come to know and love in classic disco, classic 80s, classic house, and on this episode I'm featuring some classic funk, some queer punk, and more. All that lies ahead as we start Journey 391 through Rainbow Country, and our first stop, the Rainbow Country Bookstore. Today, award-winning writer, professor, and playwright Patrick Horrigan reads from his novel, American Scholar, a novel that tells the story of a man driven to discover, but afraid to know the truth about himself and his gay lovers, both past and present. By the way, American Scholar is available wherever you get your favorite books. And on Amazon.ca, American Scholar has a rating of four out of five stars. 
James Fitzgerald would no more part with those 12 storage boxes than cut off his right arm, for they contained all that was left of Gregory, in a material sense anyway. His files on lesbian and gay activism, articles on non-monogamy and queer theory, Marxism and feminism, his college notebooks, journals, essay drafts, old newspapers and magazines, flyers and pamphlets, song lists from his DJ days, everything to do with the gay study group at Columbia, not to mention record albums, cassette tapes, books, letters, items of clothing, his stash of political campaign buttons, a veritable time capsule of his life and the life they shared in New York in the 1980s. Every couple of months, Fran would mention the boxes, how they took up so much space in the spare room, how he wished they could turn it into a proper guest bedroom, or maybe even a nursery. That was the real issue, not the boxes. The boxes weren't in anybody's way. The real issue was children. Fran wanted a child by the time he was 40, and the drumbeat had only gotten more insistent since he turned 38. James didn't want children. My books are my children, he sometimes said. Well, I'm sorry, your books aren't enough for me, Fran would shoot back. They quarreled about it again this morning, and on the very day he was set to give a reading from American Scholar. Surely that was no coincidence. The buzz in the Warburg lounge grew louder as the time approached. James had sequestered himself in the tiny office at the back of the lounge to look over his notes and some passages from the book. He never liked interacting with people before a talk or a class because it blew his concentration. Fran, meanwhile, was nowhere to be seen. James tried calling one more time. Still no answer. They'd originally planned on going uptown together, but that afternoon, Fran texted, saying he had to work late and would meet him at the Y instead. Now, minutes before the reading, he sent a message that the 7 train was delayed. So which was it? Too much work or subway trouble? Why not jump into a taxi or call an Uber? It didn't take a PhD in English to see what was going on. Of course he loved Fran and wanted him to be happy, wanted to do what he could to make him happy if it were possible. But raising a child, the sacrifice, the expense, the headache and heartache, he just couldn't fathom. The idea of being married wasn't even something he imagined for himself until a few years ago, much less being a parent. Maybe if he were younger, like Fran, he might feel different. But he was 54. He liked his life the way it was. His path, he believed, was set. He was already working on his next book, a series of personal and scholarly essays on place, from the house he grew up in to the home he'd made with Fran, along with some famous attics, rooms, and houses, both real and fictional, in between. And he could dimly see two or three more writing projects on the horizon. He took a deep breath. People had come to hear him speak about American scholar, friends and colleagues and students and people he didn't even know, Getting tangled in a marital spat was the last thing he wanted at this moment. He stood up, silenced his phone, and slipped it into his pocket. Now, with book, notepad, and lucky silver cross pen in hand, he entered the lounge. Anyway, who knows, he thought. 
Maybe Fran will make it in time for the reception. Jimmy Fitzgerald entered the shift room of Earl Hall and took a quick look around. He felt nervous. Fifteen or twenty guys stood talking in small groups and pairs. Others sat in folding chairs arranged in a wide circle. Though many of the seats were already taken, he spotted three in a row still unoccupied. He crossed the room, trying to act like he knew what he was doing, like he belonged here, and chose the middle of the three so as not to have to sit next to anyone, at least not yet. Avoiding all eye contact, he methodically removed his coat and scarf and hung them over the back of the chair. He withdrew the book along with a notepad from his backpack and placed them on his lap. He dug through an inside pocket until he found his lucky silver cross pen, his favorite, a graduation present from his grandmother. Now, he wanted another moment to get comfortable, just take in his surroundings. The room was handsome. High ceiling, chandelier, deep-set arched windows with long drapes, dark wooden wainscoting, marble fireplace, an enormous Persian carpet. He took a deep breath. The buzz in the room grew louder as the hour approached. He wasn't ready to interact. At the same time, he wished he were any one of these guys now boisterously laughing and talking with friends. But of course, that's why he'd come in the first place. After living in New York for two years with hardly any social life to speak of, and since the breakup with Andy, virtually no romantic life, what he needed was friends, like-minded, openly gay friends. The gay study group at Columbia promised to be the answer to his prayers. The chatter in the room died down as Gregory called the group to order. Welcome to the gay study group at Columbia. My name is Gregory Lenda. Most of you know me. By day, I'm the bookkeeper for Democratic Socialists of America, and by night, I'm the organizer of this group. I started it three years ago with Bill, and he gestured with his elbow to a cute, muscular guy with enormous eyes and long sideburns sitting directly to his right. Hi, hi, Bill said, waving his hand, when we were seniors here at Columbia. At the time, we felt there was very little sense of community among gay men on campus. The big gay dance on the first Friday of every month was about the only formal event that brought people together. Otherwise, everybody would leave campus with their friends and head downtown to drink and dance. And don't get me wrong, he and Bill turned momentarily to look at each other. We love to drink and dance, but we thought there needed to be another way for gay men to get to know one another and also to learn about the community's history and politics, because I personally think the AIDS crisis has made it more urgent than ever to know who we are and where we're going. There's a lot of people out there right now trying to use this epidemic against us and turn back the clock on gay liberation. So that's why Bill and I created the study group with the blessing and financial support of student activities. He clasped his hands in prayer. Thank you, student activities. And I'm proud to say our membership has been growing steadily ever since. I want to give a special welcome to the newcomers tonight. You mind just raising your hands so we know who you are? Jimmy, along with a handful of others, raised his hand. That's great. Welcome. So tonight, Bill's going to give a brief introduction to the book, and I'll facilitate the discussion. And then we have a surprise plan for you, so make sure you stick around. 
then as if Gregory were a news anchor and take it away, Bill. First, I want to thank Gregory, Bill said, gently placing a hand on Gregory's knee for making all of this possible. It's really good to be here. You all didn't see too much of me last year because I was studying to become a Quaker. This elicited a few ohs and wows from the group. He laughed and withdrew his hand from Gregory's knee. It's because of my boyfriend. He's a Quaker, which reminds me at some point, I'd like us to tackle religious ideas about homosexuality, maybe next semester. I think it would be great if we could, you know, take some ownership of that discourse, which is so often used against us. Just putting that out there. So this is how gay men talk, Jimmy thought, looking at Gregory and Bill, admiring their easy eloquence, envying their subtle camaraderie. He and Andy never had that tenderness with each other. This is the sound of their voices. This is how they comport themselves when sex is not top of mind. Gregory smiled. Being with you last night reminded me how good I used to feel with you. Me too. Jimmy felt the stirring of an erection. And how I used to feel I could tell you anything and you wouldn't judge me. I want you to feel that way. I know you never stopped caring about me. I never stopped. You're right. It's just, I know. You're the first real boyfriend I ever had. And I never, I always, Jimmy paused to collect his thoughts. I have so much to learn about being in a relationship, but you are very important to me. You have no idea. I'm glad, Gregory said, sipping his beer. So, I feel I can tell you, I recently got tested again for HIV. Jimmy tensed up. And I'm happy to report the test came out negative. Oh, shit, are you trying to scare me? Imagine how I felt having to wait for the results. Was there any doubt? Gregory leaned back. There's always doubt. No, but I mean, did you really think you might be HIV positive? Yes. Why? Because the virus is out there and any one of us... No, seriously, have have you had unsafe sex? Are you interrogating me? I think I have a vested interest in knowing whether a friend has been having unsafe sex. Well, I prefer to say safer because you really never know. People get a false sense of security or doom with words like safe and unsafe. It's not that simple and clear cut. Jimmy stared in disbelief. Sometimes you use a condom and there could be a tear you're not aware of, or you have foreplay and a drop of Gregory. James, you need to keep it down, he said quietly but forcefully. The warmth had gone out of his voice. Most people say you can't get it from cocksucking, and in the anal department, I only finger-fucked you, so you're fine. It's not me I'm worried about. I'm only telling you this because I wanted to celebrate the fact that I'm HIV negative, one day at a time, you know? You said you wanted to know my status, so I'm telling you. One day at a time? Are you nuts? The waitress arrived with their burgers. Anything else I can get you? No, just the check, Gregory said. She raised her eyebrows. Okay, gotcha. Gregory took out his sunglass case and threw it down on the table. What are you doing? I thought you would understand. He put on the sunglasses and tossed the case back into his bag. Jimmy pushed his plate aside. You're telling me you're having unsafe sex. 
I'm telling you I'm HIV negative. You must think I'm an idiot. I don't appreciate being scolded. He slung his backpack over one shoulder and slid out of the booth. Where are you going? I need some air. As Gregory walked out of the bar, Jimmy made eye contact with the bartender, who appeared to have been eavesdropping on their argument. The waitress returned with the check. Your friend coming back? Jimmy let out a soft laugh. He thought of an excuse that wouldn't sound embarrassing. Then he dismissed it. (laughs) I don't know. You want me to wrap it up? She asked, clearly bewildered by Gregory's sudden departure. I don't know. No, I'm sorry. He won't be back. I don't know. You'll be paying for it, right? She said with a frown. Jimmy looked at her, then the exit. Yeah, he thought. I'll be paying for everything. When I return, Casa Susanna. Hi, I'm Saida Garrett, co-writer of Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mr. Mark Tara. Sophie Hackett. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I am well, I am well. Uh, Dr. Isabel Bonnet, bonjour, comment ça va? Bonjour, ça va et vous? Okay, girl, don't get too carried away. That's as far as I go when it comes to my French. (laughs) I I have to say, thank you both for being here, to have your voices, your stories be heard by the LGBT community and beyond, especially to talk about a photographic uh, exhibit that's on right now at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, Casa Susanna, photographs documenting uh, America's first trans network. Sophie Hackett, let's start with yourself. You are the the AGO's curator of photography. Talk to me specifically about the genesis of this exhibit coming to the AGO and uh, how did that come about? Talk to me about that aspect, if you can. Sure. Uh, I'd say the genesis of this project uh, goes back about 10 years, if you can believe it. Um, And in different ways, unbeknownst to each other, uh, Isabel and I each found a book also called Casa Susanna, that was published in 2005. Isabel was working on her um, on her MA thesis. I was working on a show to do with photography and queerness uh, for World Pride here in Toronto in 2014. Um, and a friend had told me about these pictures. He's like, oh, do you know about this, this Casa Susanna? Uh, and in this book from 2005, what you see are, you know, humble family snapshots, kind of the kind the kind that any family might take from the 1960s, primarily. So you can imagine that kind of color. If any, if you have some snapshots of your own from the 1960s, you know what they look like. Uh, colors a little bit faded, some crazy fashion. Um, 
And, uh, you know, and their friends getting together, there are birthdays, there are parties on the, uh, in the summertime, um, you know, but what, what you realize what's different about these family photographs is, of course, they were of cross-dressers um, who, a very small community in the U.S. at the time, who would come together um, either in New York City uh, or in upstate New York in the Catskills at uh, a couple of different resorts. But the, that's kind of, that's the Casa Susanna of the title. So, Dr. Isabel Bonet, you are a, a photography historian. Talk yes. to me about talk to me about your involvement in bringing this exhibit to the AGO specifically. Can you shed some light on on that that element? Uh, sure. Um, I um, well, I had bought the, the book in two thousand five as well. I uh, was quite fascinated by it, and uh, I at the time I worked in fashion, and then. I resumed my studies, um, art history, actually, and um, I choose, you know, the book as a subject for my master, for my first master. Um, and this is how it began for me. Like I, you know, started to dig a little bit and try to get witnesses and try to get names and try to get the whole pictures. Um and um, after my, my my master, I came back like two years later. I came back again to the story because we had the project of a film, um, and so I, you know, I resumed my my investigation um, for the film um, that came out uh, with Sebastian Lipschitz. And so that's about it. And it was, you know, once you get the whole picture, it was. Uh, natural for me uh to you know to to start to organize um with sophia uh, an exhibition and a book of course and what makes this happen is that uh in the interim uh we here at the AGO were able to acquire the set of photographs that were in that book from 2005. Mm -hmm. so a couple of decorative arts dealers in the u.s had found them at a flea market uh, and, you know, I came to know them as I was planning this other show in 2014. And as they retired and downsized, um, we were able to come to an agreement to buy the photographs from them. So the AGO holds a core group of these pictures, which is why it made sense for us um, to be part of the, the book and the exhibition. Um, and some of them are even used in the film that uh, Isabel worked on. So there are multiple facets here, um, but the the fact remains, AGO holds one of the core the core groups of pictures um, about this about this network of people. Um, and as we've done more research, uh, we've learned more and more. The pictures themselves have become richer and richer through what we've learned. So, Sophie, was it essentially your your decision, or at least bringing it up to the AGO because you're the curator of photography at the AGO. Was it essentially your, maybe your idea or your suggestion to have this exhibit at the AGO that's on right now? You know, it's, it's um, let's say it, it was the result of multiple conversations, um, you know, between Isabel and I, mm -hmm. and then it became clear that, um, that in doing an exhibition would be a great idea. And I said that, and so with Isabel's support, I brought the idea to my bosses and said, we have to do this. And they agreed. So I'd say it's a, it was a collaborative, mm. a collaborative effort. 
Well done. Well done to the two of you. You just mentioned there's a documentary called Casa Susanna that's that's out now. Uh, have have I'm assuming the two of you have seen this documentary. Yes. Isabel and, was in fact uh the kind of one of the lead people to make it happen. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, yes, she's definitely seen the film, <laughs> uh, and as have I. The film actually premiered at TIFF in 2022. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was very moving to see it there on the big screen. Yeah, I, I cover TIFF, and mm-hmm. in 2022, it was on my radar, and I reached out to the, you know, the powers that be, The but, you know, I couldn't get any interviews. But here I am now in 2024. Great. Talking, better, talking better. to Dr. Isabel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dr. Isabel, can you shed some light on the making of this documentary that's out now, uh, the documentary on Casa Susanna? Like, how how did you get involved with the documentary? Um, well, at the time, um, so I was working on something else at the time, and then my husband um, worked for a TV producer. Um, and um, he kept going on saying to me, you know, the Casa Susana is such a story and, um, you know, you have a few witnesses and they're still alive. So, you know, we should we should propose um, the subject um, uh, for the TV channel Arte in France. Um, and this is how it all started. So, um, uh, of course, the TV channel Arte was very much interested um, uh, but at the time, they didn't want me to direct the film mm-hmm. on my own. So I had to find a co-director and uh, we actually, so it was, you know, it was complicated. So after a year, well, um, I was friends already with Sebastian because we did a few things together already. And so, um, and I knew he was dying to do the film. So um, finally I said, well, you're free now. Um, you know, uh, we have to do the film and let's propose uh, the TV channel to, you know, do it together. Mm, well done. Well done on the documentary. Director in question, which you may or may not know, is Sebastien Lifshitz, who's known for, he's a very well-known filmmaker in France and also is a collector of, photographs of cross-dressers as it happens. So there's a personal, yeah. personal mm. interest too. So you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, 2004, I believe, uh, at a flea market, these photos that are part of this exi- exhibition that's on right now at the AGO uh, were just sitting there in 2004 at a flea market. Yes. Can, uh, I'm not sure who to address this question to, but can someone speak to who acquired this in 2004. <laughs> so there were two men, Michelle Hurst and Robert Swope. They're a couple. They were decorative arts dealers. Uh, and so, you know, as um, treasure hunters, in a way, they were at the Chelsea flea market. Um, and, you know, Robert saw at a stall um, these photographs. And there were just something about them that struck him as special. And so he gathered as many as he could uh, and then took them home. There were, so they bought in total 340 photographs uh, and took them home and really spent time looking at them. And I think he was struck by the ordinariness of them um, mm-hmm. as well as 
the singularity, <laughs> the singularity, yeah, the uniqueness of it's not them. cabaret. No, that they're what they're you know they're not pictures of drag. They're not extravagant. They're you know they're women who look like I don't know somebody's grandmother from the 1940s. You know, where matching shoes and purse and lipstick, um, all very well put together. Um, and that struck him as something as something unique. Um, and so they, they decided to publish a book. And that publishing that book um, in 2005, they kind of opened up the story because people been of course to Casa Susana in the time some were some are still living um they came forward uh and it and it brought it brought the story to light in a new way and were these photos were they all together were they in a box or or were they just like 300 just strewn on a table somewhere he, Robert never spoke about that too much but mm. some were in an album and the album on the front had a business card that read Susanna Valenti, uh, the Susanna of Casa Susanna. It's a Susanna Valenti, female impersonation, Spanish dancing. Um, and what, uh, so we know that there's an album and that there were a number of loose photographs. I don't know if they were in a box, you know. I think it was in a box just like this, yeah. yeah. Um, and what we, what we now know, thanks to um, Isabel's research, is that Susanna, Susanna was born in, in Chile and came to the U.S. in the 1930s. Uh, or earlier even no, 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 no. in the 1930s but so the Spanish dancing part uh, comes from her her very roots and on that note we'll return after this rainbow country update hi I'm Paul Poirier Canadian champion in ice dance and three-time Olympian and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Terra. Hello, Canada. I'm Canadian jazz vocalist Audie Bronze. If you're in the Toronto area on February 27th, I've got a great show coming up at the Jazz Bistro. To help celebrate the release of my new CD, Night and Day, the Cole Porter Songbook, I'll perform Cole Porter's music and also pay tribute to two of Porter's contemporaries, Noel Coward and Kurt Vile. Backed by a stellar combo, Don Breithaupt piano, Russ Boswell bass, Mark Kelso drums, and William Sparande trumpet, let this music sweep you off your feet. The Jazz Bistro fills up very quickly, so reserve your table now by calling 416-363-5299. Let the poets fight the love in the childish way. I know every type of love better fall than Hi, my name is Joanne Vanicola, and I'm an actor and a writer, and I was first on Rainbow Country with Mark Tara on discussing the massacre at Pulse Club in, in Orlando. Um, I realized how important it was for our community to have a radio station, uh, specifically for our issues, to, to talk about people in, in the LGBTQ community and to provide a, an outlet for our stories, um, to discuss uh, our politics, culture, and give voice to the to the issues that matter to us, and of course our artists and and um, the things that we do globally. And 
and talk about culture. And without people like Mark Tara uh, providing a space for this with with a radio show like this, then uh, we wouldn't have that voice. So support. Tune in. Thank you. Hi, I'm Eric Radford, Olympic and world champion figure skater, pianist and composer, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Terra. So Sophie Hackett, you you have a master's degree in in the visual arts from I believe the University of Chicago. You're also a a faculty member at the now Toronto uh, Metropolitan University. Uh, in the film and photography preservation department, how did you get turned on to the visual arts, to going down the road to what you're doing now? Like, were you a photographer? Uh, did you want to be a photographer? Did you want to be a filmmaker? How did you get turned on to the visual arts originally? Uh, well, I certainly, you know, was exposed to art as a young person. Um, you know, my fam- my grandmother in particular would take me to museums. And mm-hmm. so that kind of always part of our our life. I grew up in, in the countryside outside of Montreal, so not a lot of museums around there. But when we could, we would go and visit. Um, but as a you know, fast forwarding a, a while, uh, I did for a moment think I would like to be an artist. I did study. I have a, um, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in photography from the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design in Vancouver. Um, and so that uh, very much, I think, shaped my sense of, um, you know, I wanted to work in that field somehow. And I initially thought I wanted to be an artist. But of course, as you get real about those ambitions, uh, I felt like, in fact, I would, I wanted to focus instead on writing about and talking about other people's work, that that would be I was going to bet on that horse rather than uh, on on being an artist myself. Um, I ended up working in galleries and and nonprofits and doing freelance writing and freelance curating and eventually my master's in art history at the University of Chicago um, and uh, and wended my way uh, to the AGO. But you know, feel uh, I suppose what's perhaps most related to. Um, this exhibition at hand is I've always been interested in this category that we call vernacular photographs or photographs that weren't necessarily made um, intentionally for the gallery space. So it's not, uh, you know, photographers in the ca- of the Casa Susana pictures weren't thinking about the museum. They weren't thinking about making a splash with their work. They were simply trying to document themselves in their own lives uh, and to maintain their kind of network of connections. So I love these outside uses, these uses of photography that kind of go beyond um, the, I don't know, the art world per se. Um, and that's always been an interest of mine from the beginning. In fact, the first exhibition I ever curated was called The Found and the Familiar Snapshots in Contemporary Canadian Art about how artists had used that material of their own family lives um, uh, to make their own work as inspiration for their own work. So that interest has been longstanding. Mm, well done. So Dr. Isabel Bonet, you have two master's degrees. Yeah. Uh, one of which is on the Casa Susana book, I understand. What was it about this book and these images and these people that drew you to wanting to study them 
even more. What drew you to this in particular? Um, well, I said I, I bought the book when it came out in 2005. I was, um, for one reason, I wouldn't explain maybe my my psychiatrist could, uh, but I, I was fascinated by those pictures. And when I um, when I arrived for my master in uh, uh, Paris Panthéon Sorbonne, which is the uh, University of uh, Panthéon Sorbonne, I had at first the, the idea to work on it, but to work on it um, in in um, and to work to, on transgender uh, in photography. Uh, which was uh, probably much more of subject for a PhD than a, a, a simple master. Um, and um, when I show this book actually to my director, he said, "Well, I think you have, you know, you have found the subject of it. Um, it's um, it's probably a lot already. So just go for it." Um, and that's it. Um, I think I have. Um, as a woman, uh, I think I was always interested in a social construction of gender. Um, and, um, and I was always interested in uh, snapshots in uh, what we call vernacular pictures, which is um, because maybe because it's very, it's quite private and maybe because uh, there's a, it's quite naive, but in, but it talks about us and uh, about the society, maybe sometimes even more than would artists do. I don't know. I mean, anyway, this was my kind of fascination about it. Mm. Some of these photographs, if my memory is serving me correctly, they're, some of them are Polaroids, correct? Or am I wrong? Some are Polaroids, definitely. And they're essentially like... These men that are are cross dressing as women, uh, they weren't. They were they were men going to this 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 space in the Catskills, Casa Susanna, and they were for the most part white men. They were middle class. They were upper middle class. They had families and. Some of them, or most of them, identified as straight, even though they they cross dress. Mm-hmm. And there's a distinction between you know sexuality and gender and gender expression. And just because you're gay doesn't mean that you know you're necessarily effeminate. And just because you're you're straight doesn't mean that you can't cross dress. And you can also be straight as well. And that was fascinating to me when when this this information came out about the people in this exhibit and in the documentary that these men were you know men that were, had families and some of them were straight and but they were all cross dressers and i'm interested to know if that surprised the two of you when you were researching this and and this information was coming out did did that aspect surprise the two of you i mean i think there's there's a lot that we won't know we can't know about the inner lives of the crossdressers at casa susanna we do know 
the one of the key players, there's Susanna and her wife, Marie. They were based in New York. Uh, there was also a West Coast uh, force. Her name was Virginia Prince. And Virginia uh, published a magazine called Transvestia. And Transvestia, it was published throughout the U.S. and even distributed internationally to subscribers. And she had she had a mission. Her mission was, let's make cross-dressing uh, let's get cross-dressing accepted. You know, let's normalize the practice of cross-dressing. And in order to do that, she kind of set some very clear parameters. You know, we're straight. It's script. It's, yeah, it's kind of as, exactly as Isabel said, it's a script. Uh, that it's straight men who sometimes have the uh, dress up as women. And there's nothing about this that's threatening. There's nothing about this that's deviant. This is just a thing that some men do. Uh, but of course, in order to really do that, um, they end up excluding um, gay men, anybody with any kind of you know a, a fetish of any kind. They desexualize the practice, and we know historically that for some there was a sexual thrill to putting on women's clothes, women's undergarments, for instance. Um, so the people who really kind of came together around Virginia and who stayed around Virginia and Susanna uh, were those that really felt like they could follow that script. Um, of course, to travel to those places, you needed money uh, to be able to have a camera, to buy the clothes, to um, make your own photographs, to pay for the processing. You need you needed to be um, you needed to have funds at your disposal. Uh, so, you know, they explains why many of them were professionals. They were engineers and lawyers yeah. and airline pilots. Oh, and, um, you know, Virginia Prince was worked in pharmaceuticals. Um Susanna worked for the military. She worked for the Voice of America. Uh, so, you know, they, so all that to say, I wasn't per se surprised to learn that they were straight, but we learned that, um, that that was very much the program that mm. they, they would, they agreed to follow in some okay. way. Um, and in fact, you know, Virginia, as, more and more cross-dressers decided they wanted to live full-time as women, and some of them underwent gender affirmation surgery. Mm -hmm. um, Susanna and Virginia both really rejected that, and they rejected those people who uh, went ahead and had surgery because they felt like, no, to be our cross-dresser, it's part-time. It's some of the time, not all of the time. Wow, interesting. And herself, from about 1968, lived full-time as a woman. Yeah. So, you know, there's a little and, contradiction there. And to go to Denmark at one point yes. after Christ, uh, Christine Jorgensen came back. Yes. But you have to imagine um, that when it started, like when, you know, the, the transvestia started, which meant that suddenly all these men could exchange together, see each other, and and uh, suddenly they they had this consciousness not to be alone. Um, but in, in this particular time, all of them who, who started to cross-dress, usually as kids, they had no answers, you know what I mean? They, they you know, and, and they couldn't have any answers. They couldn't go to the family, they couldn't go to the doctor, they couldn't... They couldn't turn to anyone to have an answer. And most of them were like, you know, why am I doing this? Um, and because of this, and because it was, of course, um, you know, Cold War environment, which is, you know, as we know, very repressive, um, they suddenly found themselves um, in this network um, where they could have friends like them, 
where they could share um, their anxieties or their thought or or their joy even. Um, and so you had on one side the doxa of uh, Virginia Prince, but on the other side, you had all these guys who just uh, wanted to talk to each other and have a good moment. And uh, as Kate, where one of our witnesses uh, said, um, you know, they knew that some of them were probably gay, but it didn't matter, you know. Um, and then when you say that, you know, officially they, they were supposed to be straight, um, um, some of them, actually Kate and Dinah from, from the film, you can see in the film, um, as men, they were, they, you know, they liked women. And when they undergone surgery, gender reassignment, they still like women. <laughs> so there was... They became right? lesbians. Yeah, they became lesbians. <laughs> yeah, but in a way, the, you know, the, the sexual orientation didn't change mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know... <laughs> their gender changed. Yeah, because their gender changed. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a long answer for you, but... Uh, Maybe too long, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, I think you have... I think one thing that's important to remember is that this at this period, you know, when they're exploring this in the mid to late 50s into the early 60s, it's still a period of, um, we're still in the Cold War, it's still a period of uh, very strictly defined gender roles, you know, that all of these men had grown up with a very strict idea, a very clear idea of what it meant to be a man, and you were supposed to be a man, you know, and when you felt like you didn't meet that ideal, that even fantasy, uh, then then what you know uh there's a lot of shame yeah. there's a lot of depression we know many committed suicide okay, yeah. uh it was a very different though though the photographs have uh, relay a lot of joy we know their lives were very difficult in so many ways and we know interior the sort of interior talk that they uh the things they were wrestling with um were really were really serious you know um that they felt it was a failure so you couldn't kind of live up to this idea of being a man Interestingly, you know, Virginia Prince is one of the first people to write about gender as a social construct. You know, she could write about the the, the kind of cult of virility, the way that this kind of ideal of manhood um, is socially constructed. At the same time, they couldn't quite see that their own version of femininity, the flip side of that, was kind of driven by the same culture. It's the flip side of the same coin. So they were strict in their own way about what being a woman meant. It's what it meant to them. But of course, it's very quickly through the 60s becomes that idea of a kind of appropriate, um, coy uh, womanhood is um, falls out of favor and they run afoul of the second wave feminist movement. Anyway, that's a sidebar for you, even making the answer even longer. (laughs) And the images that these people have of themselves they took their own photographs because in many of, cases, yes. of the the times that they were living in can you talk to me about that aspect well they well they had to take their own pictures because um they were afraid to you know give the film to a lab um so they most of them learned how to take pictures and and eventually how to develop it. That's why when um, when Polaroid came out um, in the 60s, the very beginning of the 60s, that was a relief for most of them because 
you know, they had the picture straight away and they didn't have to do anything to to see themselves as women. Um, other than that, the pictures, I mean, photographs was, photographs were obsessive uh, because it was the only way to have a trace of the girl within. Um, and um, uh, like, you know, one of the witness, Kate, Kate Cummings, uh, when she had her reassignment in the 80s, um, she said, well, you know, as soon as I came out of the hospital, I, I didn't need to do pictures anymore because I was Kate at mm. least, at last, I mean. So, you know, they, 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 the picture was the only way for them to have the proof mm -hmm. of the woman within. Mm -hmm. The fact that the two of you, the two of you are helping to bring to light uh, LGBT history that goes back to, you know, the 50s and the 60s that were sitting on a table at a flea market in 2004. What are your thoughts on that? That, that, and maybe it's, it's an odd question to ask, but that you guys are helping to shed light on an aspect of queer history that was not known before. And you're doing it through the the art exhibit, through the documentary. Sophie, how how does that make you feel that you're helping to do this to shed some light on some some lost queer history? I mean, to me, it feels it feels very important. I feel humbled by it in many ways. It and I, you know, it it feels like a personal project as you know as a as a queer person myself to to know that we to see that um kind of whole rainbow range of people have existed of course for a very long time um you know it's i i hope that you know i myself am not trans uh so i i i hope that it finds uh, that is meaningful to um to, to trans individuals as they as they grapple with their own identities and as they live their lives to see also that they themselves have existed as they know they have for a long time. Um, so it feels there's a personal dimension, but I think there's a political one too, and um, that there is um, that to make the lives of people in the past visible. And this is my this is my historian speaking uh, that make the lives of um, people from the past visible is can um, we hope change the course of the future? So I, I, to me this this is part of why I mean, and I I love who they I love the pictures I love who they are I love what they strive to do in the face of difficult circumstances, um, and uh, I'm so happy to know that they found each other. And Dr. Isabel Bonet, how does it make you feel to to be bringing light? to some lost unknown queer history from the 50s and the 60s and and a complicated history a nuanced history at that how does that make you feel um i suppose like sophie meaning that uh i think you know we we all of us have history uh, the problem is you know for certain people it was uh, taboo and and it was impossible for them to leave a trace. Um, 
uh, and it was, of course, all the you know LGBT plus community. They couldn't leave a trace. So we have partial traces in the history since the Middle Age, but um, you know it, it was too dangerous for them. So it's it's all fragmented. You know, this story uh, is not fragmented. This is what is exceptional with it is that we. We we have this um, hundred and thousand of pictures uh, that were left, and and the magazine that was left. So you know, um, it, it's so well documented in a way that uh, it's suddenly like, oh my god, you know, um, it's it's um, it's a way of giving back history to every one of us. We we do deserve it. I mean, everyone deserves to know you know, the struggle, the fight, or the ancestors, or, you know, how it was. And and it is political, of course, because um, because uh, in America and in Europe right now, we have this uh, wave of uh, um, extreme right coming in and, um, and a lot of um, disinformation about it, you know, people saying... Uh, it's um, it's a fashion to be transgender, or it's something very new. Um, so showing this is a way of saying, well, it's not new at all. It's always been there, um, and um, and it's a way of um, well showing this to the people and maybe hope for more tolerance and um, understanding, and uh, and that's it. So definitely, it's um, today. Um, it's political. Maybe 30 years ago, it would have been less um, a political message, but today is uh, very, very political for me. Mm. So here's my last question, and it, it's for the, the two of you. And, and Sophia, I'll, I'll start with yourself. What do you hope audiences come away with once they've seen these these images, these these snapshots uh, that are part of this this exhibit? What do you hope audiences come away with after they've seen Casa Susanna? Um, I, I, I hope that they they understand the world that they were, that the Casa Susanna Crossdresses were a part of, that a, that the world existed, but and that they have an understanding of how they how they found each other, the the joy in that, the um, you know, I hope they they come away with a sense of I think both to, to Isabel's point, both the joy and the struggle. Um, and that I suppose change happens in um sometimes in a non non-linear way. But I I think there's, you know, I think they'll just they'll there's delight in the pictures themselves. I hope they delight in meeting the characters that were part of this circle. Um I hope that they see them for those queer audiences that come anyway, uh, they see their their ancestors uh, in some in some cases and they're doing doing their thing imperfectly as it is um, and that they I think have some I think compassion for uh, for what they went through and Dr. Isabel what do you hope audiences come away with after they've seen these images um, well I, I don't know about Canadian public but uh, you know the, the, the Casa Sudana was shown already in Rencontre d'Arles, um, uh, in July, September, uh, July, August, September, uh, in the south of France, in the very famous festival uh, Rencontre d'Arles. So I, I I know about you know what uh, the public was saying in France, um, and I think we didn't miss our mission 
which is that you know people get out of the exhibition in in south france saying oh my god it, it's so emotional um and we have understood many things and um um you know you know we we, we kind of look at transgender people differently maybe because um well because they liked the way um um we showed it but we, we show they, they probably what what you know what, what Sophie was saying I I admire really all of them for me they were kind of warriors and um and I think the love we had for them we transmitted it to the public at least in France um and and actually the exhibition was a huge success so you know I I I think it changed a little bit um for some people who were kind of ignorant um, uh, about the subject. Mm. Well said, well said. Sophie Hackett, Dr. Isabel Bonet, thank you both for your time. Well said, well done, well curated. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Come and visit. Yeah. Casa Susanna is on right now at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, until April 14th. For more information, simply visit ago.ca. Bill 7. To ban discrimination in employment, government services, and housing based on a person's sexual orientation was up for a vote at Queen's Park. Most NDP and Liberal MPPs supported the bill, but without some progressive conservative legislators' backing, a divisive split could rack the province. Four PCs decided to break party ranks to vote with their conscience and support Bill 7. Cabinet Minister and MPP Dennis Timbrell did it to show solidarity for his beloved brother, the well-known drag queen Rusty Ryan. And for me, a gay politician who was not yet out, I had to take a stand. We were known as the Gang of Four. I'm former Cabinet Minister and MPP Phil Gillies. The date, December 2nd, 1986, when LGBT rights came to Ontario. And just like that, this little gay journey through rainbow country has come to an end. For the full two-hour episode, simply head over to marktara.com where everything is connected and hit the archives banner. To keep up to date with the show, check out my socials at Mark Tara. The podcast is available on all major platforms. And finally, I want to take this time to thank you for taking your time to be with me. Remember, we are living in days of making dreams come true. So believe in yourself, and the world will believe in you. Hi, this is Michael Anthony Alago, music executive, photographer, author, and you are listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. <laughs>